So my, yeah, my prayer is that God would reveal his wisdom to us this morning and that everything else would be forgotten. Um, we want to encounter Jesus today. Um, so Lord, we just pray that you would take these words uh, and penetrate our hearts with what's of you. Amen. Okay, so um, we can flick on a few slides, um, I think. So just, um, I'm going to give you an overview of what I'm going to say. I'm going to tell you everything I'm going to say, and then I'm going to start saying it after that. So generally, uh, we're going to talk around that passage that's just been read out. Read out. You know, it's about the message of the cross, foolishness, but wisdom. It's weakness, but it's power. It's a stumbling block. It's offensive. Um, it's foolishness to others, but it's the power of God. And we're going to talk about Jesus who became wisdom. Um, you know, in a world that we live in of competing wisdom, Jesus, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And he doesn't give us complicated methods, um, but he becomes the way. And the way that we're called to is contrary to the world's way. We've got to accept that. It's different. It's not conventional wisdom. And we're going to think about what the height of wisdom is. And then I'm going to try and give a bit of a frame of reference to how we should live in response to that. Wow, it got loud. Should I be closer, do you think? Or... Okay. Right, thanks very much. So, basically, I'm going to kind of go a little bit um, sentence by sentence through the passage and share some thoughts as we go. But, but first, um, Corinth. So, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. I've tried to give you some nice uh, slides that appeal to my architectural mind. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Corinth, yeah, so um, Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, and that's a church he had founded about a year and a half or something earlier. Um, you know, Corinth, it was a cosmopolitan, bustling, trading city. Uh, there's loads of competing ideas going on there, loads of idols, loads of immorality, corrupt thinking, corrupt doing. Uh, and the Corinthian church was a church of mainly Gentile uh, believers rather than Jews. Um, you know, it's a confusing world. But as believers who had put their faith in Jesus, their, their lives there had been profoundly changed. They were new creations, you know, different worldview, different allegiance, a different lifestyle. But they were struggling um, to work out what to think, how to live, pressure to conform. They were confused about all sorts of things. Um, and in that culture which prided itself on being so enlightened, their faith in a crucified Messiah um, just looked foolish. So, you know, there's some similarities for us um, there. And in this complicated passage, um, Paul's just riffing around these themes of wisdom and foolishness and weakness and power. And, um, but he begins with the message of the cross being foolishness to those who are perishing. Now, the message of the cross, what, what is it? There's lots we could say about the message of the cross. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's, the big, it's the biggest story of there being a creator, a God, that we were made by, that we're made for connection with, 
our lives are supposed to be lived in reference to him. You know, that didn't go well. We have rebelled. We'd rather serve ourselves. We're disconnected. We can't save ourselves. But in God's wisdom, he made a way. He sent um, Jesus to grow up in, this, in the system but live a sinless life. Um, to be arrested, crucified by the system as a sacrifice for us. And then God raised him um, to life again. He appeared to many people. He ascended to heaven and he's going to return one day to be the judge to put things right to reconcile all things to him. In a nutshell, that's kind of the bigness of this message. That's the message of the cross that's foolishness. Foolishness um, in the amplified version. I did do a little bit of uh, reading around. They say absurd, illogical. I like those kind of words. You know, am I crazy? Am I crazy to believe this? Have you ever been there? Yeah, some of us go there from time to time. Some of us live in that kind of place. Um, but it's not just us. There's plenty of people around us. They're thinking the same thing. They look at us and think, what? Are you really crazy enough to believe that? Um, we're going to look at that a bit more in a bit. But then there's this other thing. The, foolish, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So that's a bit of a word, isn't it? Perishing. You know, it sends a bit of a shudder um, down our spines as we read it. It's not, it's not a word that's in my everyday vocab, to be honest, except for um, Harvest Festival and food banks. You know, we don't want anything that's perishable. But what is it? What is perishing? It's rotting. It's in the process of dying. It's an apple that's been cut off the branch, which once fed it. And it's to those people who are perishing that the message of the cross is foolishness, Paul says. You know, there's no getting around it. Um, Paul's making a distinction here, isn't he? It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. So that's the opposite of perishing, those who are being saved. It's the same message, it's foolishness, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. Now, it's really awkward for us to hear. It doesn't appeal to our kind of, you know, sensibilities. We know that we're on the right side of that couplet, so it's kind of, oh, it's okay for us. We're all right, we're being saved. Hmm. But, you know, Jesus makes that same distinction, doesn't he? He urges us to enter through the narrow gate. He says, you know, wide is the gate, broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many follow, many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. Yeah, the message is foolishness to those who are perishing. And of course, to the, the Gentiles in Corinth, that was foolishness. The message that this Jesus who was um, born to a peasant girl in some obscure place in the Middle East, that he's the anointed king that the Jewish nation had been looking for for generations, that such a king would be a, a saviour and a rescuer who would redeem people. 
And that that savior wasn't just sent from God, but he actually was God himself. Jesus said, no, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know him. That's quite a claim. And then to the, to the Greeks in Corinth, for the, it's a further step. You know, they weren't even Jews. You know, that me, someone here, could be saved and receive a different kind of life, a complete kind of life, by putting my trust in a Jewish God. You know, you can understand why it makes no sense to them. It says, um, to us who are being saved, this message is the power of God. You know, we've, we know um, we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. Have been saved from the penalty of sin, we are being saved from the power of sin in our lives. And one day we will be saved from the, uh, the presence of sin that's the power of, of the message. You know, Paul says elsewhere, doesn't he, that I'm not ashamed of that gospel, I'm not ashamed of that message, because that's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So this message, it's not just a simple kind of ABC, um, admit this, believe this, confess that, happy days. It's big, it's like, it's everything, it's the message um, that changes everything. It's a total change of allegiance for us. It's a change of worldview under new management. We're living in a different kingdom under a different king. That's, that's the gravity of it all. So, you know, we find ourselves in that situation where we are radically divided by the message of the cross. It's, you know, it's not very inclusive, really, is it? It's... It, it's radically exclusive. It excludes, and that's very uncomfortable. But, you know, let's listen to Jesus as he explains that to Nicodemus, the teacher. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Obviously, Jesus talking about himself. So then the passage goes on and um, there's a, um, when it talks about, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. That's like a, when I was reading around it, I found out that's a, um, that's a quote from a passage in Isaiah 29, when um, it's in the days of King Hezekiah, and Jerusalem's in danger from um, the enemy, um, the enemy kingdom in Assyria. But those words are directed at the actual people of God at Jerusalem, the people who are supposed to be with God. And um, to see the side of that, it says, these people come near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Uh, their worship of me is based on just human rules that they've been taught. Therefore, I'm gonna astound them. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. You um, shall not 
Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you didn't make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? That's a kind of sentiment, that kind of um, ego that we, we live in all around us, you know, that, that thing. But the message there is just calling out the hypocrisy of the people who honour with their lips but their hearts are far. And it's a real call for humility. Where is the wise person? Where's the teacher? <clears throat> Where's the philosophers? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? You know, God's wisdom is a massive leveller. Because as we approach God, um, it's not as people who are intelligent, um, who's, who are wise, but we approach God as humble children, as believers. That's our posture as we approach God you know um, I'm quite a thinker myself um, I like stuff like that um, you know and there's many of us like that in this room uh, and there's nothing wrong with being educated there's nothing wrong with being a thinker uh, and absolutely you know our faith is 100% not about putting our brains on the shelf at the door um, but it is most definitely about putting our egos on the shelf. Putting our egos on the shelf, that is fundamental. As we approach God, you know, it's only when we humble ourselves that we can receive the message of the cross. Um, the passage goes on and it's a bit complicated, but it kind of the message is, it was wise of God to make himself mysterious and unreachable by human philosophy. You know, instead, God made it so that the way to him is via this foolish message that was, preached, that was preached. And it's by trusting that foolish message that we're saved. So then it moves on to this um, interesting bit uh, where it's really, really visual. Uh, and it talks about the Jews demanding signs. Signs and stumbling blocks, yeah, wisdom, foolishness. The Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. <clears throat> Let's break that down a little bit. So the Jews demand signs. Now remember, Paul himself, he was one of them, wasn't he? He was a Jew um, growing up around you know, the hustle and bustle of Jesus and everything that was going on. Like many of them, um, they were looking for signs. And of course, the Jewish faith itself was, was built on miraculous signs. You know, uh, Abraham and the miraculous child, Moses and the miraculous journey through the sea, it's all miraculous. They were looking for miracles. Of course, that's natural. Um, but Jesus is pretty miraculous too, you know. At the end of John's Gospel, doesn't it? The last words, uh, you know, and Jesus did many, many more things, loads of miraculous stuff. And if we wrote them all down, would there be enough room in the whole world for all the books? You know, it's... Plenty of miraculous stuff going on, but um, 
we read in Matthew chapter 12 and 16, the same sort of thing happening. It says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus, they came to test him, and they came asking him to give them a sign. And when you're there in Matthew and you flick back a few pages, you see the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, people bringing the sick to him, and it says all who touched him were healed. There were healings of demon possession. Then we have crowds marveling at the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And then the next page you have people coming asking, give us a sign. You know, by what authority are you saying these things that you're God? I'll believe it if you give me a sign. And what does Jesus um, say to them? He says, mm, I'm not going to be giving you another sign, except for this one, the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, dot, 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 and then. So, there's a paradox, isn't there? You know, these people, the Jews on that, on that side, they're looking for a sign. They want a sign that he really is speaking with God's authority. But the sign that's going to be given to them is totally unacceptable to them. You know, it is offensive. It's the same for the Jews that were hearing the, the message after it all happened. Um, it was too offensive for them. That was a stumbling block. And it was the offense of it which caused them to trip. That's what I mean, you know, stumbling block. It's something you're tripping over. So they, in that group of people, they were not naturally inclined to receive the message because it was offensive to them. Now, on the other side, you've got Greeks. And, you know, these are the, uh, the intellectuals or the wisdom. They're looking for wisdom. You know, Corinth, it's not quite Athens. Um, it's not the epicenter of the intellectual world, but it has the same culture. Um, they, they prized clever arguments, logic. They even had, a, like, a set format for their debates that they expected. And, let's be honest, their culture was incredibly advanced. You know, it was a Greek scholar, I didn't know this before, but a Greek scholar three centuries earlier who had predicted the circumference of the earth, which, by the way, is 40,000 kilometers, there or thereabouts, um, and he turned out to be within 1% accuracy. He was just using shadows and measuring sticks and protractors um, from Egypt somewhere, you know. one degree accurate. That was 250 years earlier. They, they, they were intelligent and they prized intelligent arguments. But that did mean that in their context, they were just naturally disposed to trusting their own wisdom, their human wisdom, what they could work out and what made sense to them. But of course, it was foolishness to them. The message that Christ crucified, um, that it was the death of Jesus 
you know, this controversial but relatively low-key on the grand scale of things Jewish rabbi that he would be relevant to them the intellectual, the enlightened, the non-superstitious, the non-Jews but he was not only relevant, but he was central to them being reconnected to the God, the creator of the cosmos that they were, you know, exploring. Central to, the, to their connection to the creator. That's kind of foolish to them. So you've got these, these two, haven't you? You've got the Jews coming from a religious standpoint, and they get a stumbling block it's offensive. And you've got Greeks who are looking for conventional human wisdom, and to them it's foolishness, utter nonsense. So neither of those groups were naturally inclined to receive this message. Does that sound familiar at all? You know, we find ourselves in that very similar situation where it feels that the foolishness of being a follower of Jesus is just staring in the face, you know, in the world, everywhere. We find ourselves in a, in a context where our, our worldview and our practice, our values, our way of life is, or at least it should be, at sharp odds with the culture around us. It really should be. And don't we feel that constant pressure? Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's, you know, overt. That pressure to assimilate, to become like the culture that we're in. That's where we're at. But it's kind of worse than that now. Um, we find ourselves, as Christians, occupying what's been called the moral low ground these days. You know, we used to be the culture makers, the one who set up this and that and held in high regard, or at least, you know, at least had good moral good morals. Send our kids to Sunday school, at least they get good morals. But don't you find yourself sometimes in that uncomfortable place now where, you know, your values are increasingly considered immoral or at least unpalatable. And it goes kind of a step further, doesn't it? Because our, our secular neighbours and our friends, even our good close friends, are probably, if not already, starting to think of us as not just a little bit weird for our beliefs, but actually maybe they're a little bit dangerous. You know, where once our faith was tolerated... Um, but now we, we find, or perhaps we just see ahead, increasing hostility. That's where we find ourselves, I think. So here in um, 21st century Solihull, the message of the cross is considered both offensive and foolishness. You know, it's a double whammy for us. 
And again, let's be honest, it's not just other people who are asking us that. You know, sometimes we're the ones who are thinking, am I crazy? Am I crazy to believe this, to believe what I believe? Am I crazy to keep living in this way? To keep pushing myself to, to live this way? You know, the, the Bible, it's pretty long, it's pretty old, pretty different context to ours. Could it really be true that the ultimate way to life is found there? Could the way of Jesus really be the way? Could that really be the way that all this complex, complicated mess that we live in um, can come together? But as we read on, it says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So it's Christ Jesus, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's to, to those whom God has called um, that you get the fulfillment and the resolution of those, those different dispositions. You know, for those who are looking for miraculous signs, Christ Jesus becomes the power of God. For those looking for knowledge, for stuff that makes sense, Christ Jesus becomes the wisdom of God. It's, it's a big jump. What makes the difference? What is it that makes that transformation of that same message going from being offensive to being desirable or maybe even irresistible? What is it that makes that message go from being foolishness to making sense or even being wisdom? And the answer that we find here is a bit more mysterious and a bit more uncomfortable than we're disposed to ourselves. It says, you know, it's to those whom God has called. It's the calling of God to people that makes a difference. You know, how does he call? How does that work? What does it mean? I'm just going to skip over the next one. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. There's another thing, isn't it? It kind of appeals. Um, the weak thing, shaming the strong. That appeals to the underdog kind of thing. You know, I, I like that. But also that word shaming of the... Shaming the strong, that feels a bit awkward as well, doesn't it? That's, the shame culture is a pretty negative one. And shame's not a good vibe really these days. Um, I was pondering, what does that mean? But I think what it means is to shame um, the weak, to shame the strong, the foolish, to shame the weak, um, the wise. It, it's about revealing for what it really is. It's about revealing the frailty. It's about calling it out. And that's a challenge to us, I think. You know, to what I've written there, to have the bravery and the determination to live and to speak in such a way that does reveal the emptiness and the hypocrisy of the system we live in and its empty promises. 
to, to reveal the frailty of the ego, that idea that we could self-determine everything, to call out the hypocrisy, the emptiness of life where we're at the center. You know, that is, we have to realize that's part of the calling on our lives. You know, we wonder what, well, what's my calling, what am I called to? That's, that's part of it, to live that way, to, to call it out. It says, because of him, because of him, God, it's because of him that we are in Christ Jesus. You know, that's um, our position, our identity, our home, our belonging. It's in Christ. For Jesus has become for us wisdom from God, it says. Yeah, so Jesus isn't just a wise one. He's not just given us wise sayings for a wise way of life. He himself has become wisdom for us our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. So if we want anywhere to put our confidence, if we want something to boast about, let's make it him, the one who became wisdom for us. You know, Paul says, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence, I didn't come with human wisdom, but I proclaimed the testimony about God. You know, we know he was a pretty scholarly kind of guy. He was intellectual, he was educated. We heard how, how he speaks to um, you know, the philosophers on Mars Hill. But when he was living and preaching the message in Corinth, he deliberately avoided complicating stuff so that the attention could be on Jesus and what he's done for us. You know, I found that to be a challenge and encouragement to me and maybe it is to you too. You know, all too often, I feel paralyzed about speaking something in the message of Jesus to people in my life. And maybe like Jay shared, um, at work or with guys I've got friendships with who don't share my faith, at home even because I'm aware that I don't have it all worked out, when I feel like I don't have the lived experience or the credentials that I need to speak into something, when I'm mindful that I don't have the eloquent arguments or I haven't worked out the night's neatly you know, intellectual system, maybe even in church sometimes amongst fellow believers, we feel vulnerable about expressing a prayer or expressing encouragement just in case it comes out wrong. But the, the challenge and the encouragement is that God wants my weak things. He wants my anxious thoughts. He wants my vulnerable steps and my simple pointing to Jesus, you know, making it about him, not me, because that's what makes space for the Spirit's power. So Paul then loops back. He's put the emphasis on Jesus, and he puts the emphasis now on the Spirit of God. You know, it's, as he ends, you know, so that we have the mind of Christ. What is the difference that transforms the message from foolishness um, and offense? It, it has to be the role of the Holy Spirit to reveal wisdom, reveal God's wisdom. It's through the Holy Spirit that God's calling people to himself. That's another encouragement and challenge to us. You know, we want to be people of wisdom. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to be revealing God's wisdom to us pray that for each other in a church and you know for us with children 
and for everyone with spiritual children, those that we pray and care about, for our friends and our neighbours and our colleagues, you know, alongside our living and speaking the way of Jesus in front of them, we've, we need to commit ourselves to praying um, that the Holy Spirit would reveal his wisdom because that's what's going to make the difference. So Jesus has become wisdom for us. Now, um, a few weeks back, we had the Queen's funeral. And, um, you know, Justin Welby um, preached that amazing six-minute sermon, which I think he nailed it, um, pretty much, you know, pretty much nailed it. So, so much was conveyed in so few words. That's quite an art, and I'm mindful that um, many more words and minutes have been used by me today. But one of the things that struck me was what he said, that the Queen's faith um, was in Jesus, who doesn't tell his disciples how to follow, but rather who to follow. You know, Jesus not only shows us the way, he himself is the way. He not only speaks and reveals the truth, but he is the truth himself. He not only leads us to life, but he is the life. I was thinking about the way, and my mind went back to the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son, the son who thought that it was better if he made his own way in the world, the one who trusted his own judgment that he could find the way to the good life. Yeah, he was the one who was discontent, he distrusted the goodness of his father. And when that didn't work out well, when the folly of all that became evident, as it usually does, where was Jesus in that, in that word story, in that picture? You know, and this, this isn't implicitly, or sorry, it isn't explicitly stated in the text, but what God, um, I feel impressed on me as I was thinking about it, was Jesus is the way. You know, for the prodigal son, Jesus is the path. He's the road back to the Father. And the father who's waiting there with open arms and open heart. There's no complicated method. You know, there's no um, complicated way of how the son has to find a way back to the father. He has to just walk the path. And Jesus is the way. Um, if you've got time later on, maybe um, just dwell around that, um, that bit where Jesus talks about being the way, the truth, and the life a little longer. Um, you know, Jesus is there preparing his disciples for what's coming next, and it's about to look extremely foolish. It's about to get a lot more offensive um, to, you know, for the Jews to see Jesus dying there. You know, remember um, Pilate put up that sign above Jesus as he died. He put it there in three languages, it's written. You know, that's pretty deliberate. He wanted everyone to see an absolute spectacle of the foolishness of the way. The sign read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And of course, the, um, the Jews wanted to distance themselves from that. He you know, said, Pilate, Pilate, you know, don't write that. Say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He's, he's, not, he's not our king. No, no, no. It was so offensive 
to them. No, but hallelujah, that God uses that apparent weakness to reveal his power. And around that time, you know, when Jesus is saying um, he's the way, the truth, and the life, it's when the disciples are asking, like, where are you going? How are we going to get there? How are we going to know the way? Jesus says, you know, if you really know me, then you know my Father as well. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. I'm the way. Follow me. And then he goes on and he promises the Holy Spirit to them. The one who's going to reveal the truth that the world can't accept, but um, so wisdom, I think, is found here. You know, wisdom is found in the way that is Jesus. It's in realizing that Jesus and the Father are one. It's in placing ourselves in Him. It's recognizing our need for Jesus. It's letting our identity, our wandering, our allegiance, our belonging, all of that, let all of that rest in him. That's wisdom. Making room in our hearts and in our lives for him, that's wisdom. And we're not left to kind of figure it all out by ourselves. The spirit of God is sent to reveal that to us. Yeah, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. So, the message of the cross. Foolishness but wisdom. Weakness but power offensive and a stumbling block, nonsense and foolishness, yet the wisdom of God. And Jesus doesn't give us complicated methods or routes to enlightenment and wisdom. In a world of competing wisdom, Jesus himself became wisdom. He is wisdom. He doesn't show us the way, he is the way. He's the path to the Father. the way that we're called to, we have to accept it's contrary to the world's way. It's not conventional. There's that distinction we talked about. Life outside of Jesus is perishing. A lot of the time I think we need um, discernment just to see that. Often we just carry on in our lives not really seeing. You know, um, the what we so desperately need is um, it says um, Jesus says for everything in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life it comes not from the father but from the world no that's where we need a discernment the lust of the flesh you know our physical appetites that's like love just gone wrong it's deformed isn't it taking a good thing and making it not good the lust of the eyes 
That's the cancerous greed and the discontentment that's just, that's our entire system that we live in. And the pride of life. Yeah, how often do we hear and how often do we think, who are you to tell me this? Who are you? It's just pride. And it's kind of, that's the world we live in. I just want to leave you with this um, as well. Something uh, I got from a, a John Mark Comer book. Um, he says that as followers of Jesus, we are at war with the world, the flesh and the devil. You know, we've heard those kind of things before. He puts it this way. The, the enemy's strategy for us is these deceptive ideas that play out that play to those disordered desires within us. They gain traction because they appeal to us and they're normalized in our sinful society around us. So, you know, the devil's deception just grows and grows and that's the world that we live in. It's like it's rigged like that. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of the, the world context, if you like. And we need discernment to see it. So it's uncomfortable to us to live like that, or at least it should be. It's uncomfortable for us to live in the world because we live as disruptors in the world. You know, like Uber and Deliveroo um, disrupted the entire world of taxis and takeaways. We're supposed to live in a way that just totally disrupts the dynamics of the world. Like it always has been, the message of the cross is offensive to our independence. It can seem foolishness, and yet wisdom is found there in, in Jesus, who actually became wisdom for us, the one who became the way. So, <clears throat> what's wisdom? I'll leave you with a few things. I think it's recognizing our need for Jesus again and again. You know, we come to him once and we have to recognize again and again we need him. Wisdom is being in him. Wisdom is realizing that the fig leaves that we try and sew together are totally inadequate coverings. But in his goodness, he himself covers us. Wisdom is trusting the goodness and the generosity of God, even when that's not the overwhelming thing we see in front of us. Wisdom is accepting the, the core calling on each of our lives to abide continually in him like branches in the vine. You know, living as if we really believed those words that outside of him we can't do anything making room for him, putting Jesus at the center, that's wisdom. So just got some thoughts here in terms of um, how we respond. Maybe God's been speaking to you um, on other things and I'm, I'm glad if he has. <laughs> um, but here's some ideas, let's come to him again. Let's ask the Spirit to reveal Jesus' wisdom. Let's allow ourselves to be humbled, you know, to, to be willing to appear like fools. 
and pray for strength to live as disruptors in the world. Amen.